Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Philip Reeks. Based in Berlin, Philip is a freelance developer and IT consultant and teacher. You can follow him on Twitter at ReekPil, that's R-I-E-C-K-P-I-L, and check out his website at ReekPil.de. You can also find his YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash RickPill and his Java-related online courses on his website at rickpill.de slash courses. Philip is co-author of the LeanPub book Stratospheric, From Zero to Production with Spring Boot and AWS. In the book, Philip and his co-authors, Tom Hombergs and Bjorn Wilson, take you through everything you need to know to get your Spring Boot application running on AWS by developing a working web application. In this interview, we're going to talk about Philip's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk about how he got together with his co-authors to write a best-selling book. So thank you very much, Philip, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Len. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found yourself interested in computers and, uh, you know, the web and development. Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Bavaria in in Germany. It's actually... um, a city with the headquarters of three major companies. One of them is Adidas and Puma. So even though we have uh, 20K of citizens, uh, we host uh, three major uh, firms. Um, I grew up there. I I went to school, played soccer, um, got a little bit into computer science at school. So already quite early at school, we were taught Java uh, with BlueJ. This is like an IDE that teaches uh, young students uh, object orientation and we had to program a slot machine did some UI programming and also some roboter which we had to program to put boxes and this way we learned the loops the if else branches and everything about IT and yeah after after school I wasn't quite sure if I go deep on, on computer science. So I went to a job fair and there was a company presenting a job opportunity with a dual study program. So it's a mix of university and internship. So you're already employed for three years. Um, you switch between three months at the university and then three months at the company. And that's what I did. Uh, and I went for a business information technology bachelor, uh, which I was doing in Mannheim, uh, Germany for three years. And after that, um, I really found the IT part more interesting. So the bachelor goes 50-50 business and IT, but really the IT part stuck with me. And ever since I'm a software developer. And um, uh, just so, I mean, we interview people for the podcast from all over the world. Uh, most of our audience, though, is familiar with the sort of North American model of university, where it's kind of like two four-month terms and then a summer off. Is that how it works in Germany or is it is it a bit different there? That's how, that's how it usually works, yeah, for the normal students. So they go off to summer holidays. And while normal students have summer holidays, we were doing our internship and working. So we had just the 30 days of vacation a year. And um, yeah. We was like a, a working student already uh, for three years straight uh, employed at the same company, which was quite great because you could shift between the departments, could see six different departments in a short period of time and already see what, what fits. Yeah. Um, uh, a version of a question that I'm going to ask a version of a question that comes up often on the podcast. Uh, you're, you're a sort of more recent vintage from, uh, from, from university than, than many of our authors. Um, uh, but um, if you were starting out like now, like in 2022, uh, with the intention of having a career 
in, in the same field that you're in. Um, do you think you'd do a full university degree again? Yes, I, I guess I would still do a bachelor. I was always hesitating if I go for a master's degree, uh, thinking all the pros and cons. But in the end, I thought that at least for, for what I'm looking forward to do, uh, it's better to just get the hands dirty and uh, develop software and solve problems. But if I would start over, I would definitely go again for maybe even still a business information technology because you get both sides of the world. You're not the code monkey that uh, develops software. You also understand a bit of the business context and yeah, uh, have a lot of options to choose. Yeah, that's really interesting. So how does, how does knowing the business context help you in your, in your work? It, it helps me now that I'm a freelance developer to also uh, do um, yeah, calculations for revenue, for my monthly income, for taxes. Um, for the business context, for marketing, I can understand when I was working the companies, the, the KPIs, I had a rough understanding of the CFO presenting the, the numbers for the last quarter. So I guess uh, normal uh, computer science students, they may skip the slides, but actually for me, it was a bit interesting because I, I get the context and I, I understood what's, what's behind the balance sheet. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's actually also something that's come up a few times on the podcast in the past is, um, you know, knowing knowing at least the the, the language to speak to, uh, you know, people's interests on 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 the on the sort of business side, and and you know, vice versa, right, uh, can really help uh, businesses, you know, produce products better and, and sort of know where to speak together about where they're going and what they want to do next, a lot better. Um, if they're kind of they can at least they, they they'll talk their own language when they're amongst themselves, but when you're with each other, you need to be able to share have a shared language as well, and that can really help. Um, and so I'm just looking at your LinkedIn profile here, and you um, uh, you 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 did a little bit of work as you said as a as a co-op student, um, but then you worked for a, a big company called Schaeffler, um, and yes. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, who they are and and what you did for them. Yeah, so this was the company I did this the study program so for three years and then I switched from a student to a full time employee at them. Okay, so they are the third major company in my small hometown. They are a big um, manufacturer for automotive and industry. So they deliver parts for the big automotive companies and doing a lot of um, manufacturing and there I was part of the digitalization um, department where we were bringing more and more IT and um, industry 4.0 to the manufacturing plants and getting the cloud uh, in, inside such a manufacturing company going and yeah, building up um, a lot of uh, things in that area. Did you say industry 4.0? Yes. What's that? I've actually never heard that term before. And that's uh, the move in or the move, I guess it's already a little bit late now, I guess it was coined, I don't know, 10 years ago, it's the move in, in the industry in the manufacturing area to go uh, more into a connected world with IoT and connecting all the machines uh, with uh, business software and having the 365 degree of your manufacturing plant and yeah, the digitalization in the manufacturing industry. Oh, so this is this is super fascinating stuff. I, I just hadn't heard that term before, but I'm, I'm sort of familiar, I think, with, with the, somewhat with the transformation that happened in industry. But are you talking about things like digital twins and things like that? Yeah, they also fall apart. This this broad term, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's super interesting for anyone listening who might not know. You know, a digital twin is a sort of might be um maybe you have a very sophisticated and expensive machine and you can have a digital twin of it that sort of has all of its characteristics that's virtual, um, but you can kind of you know, run um, 
tests on it you can sort of like you know do things to see like what what parts are more likely to fail and need need um repair and things like that given the specific work that you're doing on it um and i guess i just not to go into too much detail but um you know anyone who's been in an, in a sort of particularly in an american airport for the in the last few years has seen like oh go to the cloud industry blah 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 but what does it actually mean you know to be working at a big at a big you know company like that and to be moving things to the cloud does that mean they used to have you know their own sort of server farm and now they don't anymore and they're working with a big company like aws or something like that yeah that's part that's one part of the transformation to to get rid of some of the data centers but it also starts uh, really in the plant to get uh, rid of old processes like uh, excel sheets that are being printed out and handed over in a shift so uh, you you can't imagine uh, what what's what's going on there. You have to replace old Windows servers running in the plant. So that's also part. So that's where it starts. The shiny buzzwords always tell about digital twin and uh, full degree of the manufacturing, but it starts really at at automating manual processes and having insights into the manufacturing and optimizing uh, for for the best output. Um, and at a certain point, you decided to go independent or, or freelance. Um, what led you to make that decision? Yeah, so I, I left this, this manufacturing company for another company in, in Berlin. So I moved then to Berlin to the, the real estate marketing place in Germany, where um, homeowners can uh, advertise their home and search for, for oh, they want to rent it out. And uh, I switched places. I moved to Berlin worked there for almost two years and then the whole work from home period started so i guess it was back to 2020 when we are all told to work from home and in berlin i had a commute of about 90 minutes 90 minutes so back and forth together and i saved this time without having to commute and working from home and i I started to use the time to to work on my on my online course. So I've been blogging uh, for, for for the Java niche for quite some time. But I used this gain time in the mornings to work on an online course, and this really took off. And uh, I decided then why not invest more time into both developing and content creation. And the best thing to do this, is, I guess, freelancing because if I would be still employed, and I would like to have a two month of creative pause. That's quite hard to argue with your your manager, I guess, to say, no, I'm two months off, I don't know, co-working in Thailand, uh, figuring out uh, my next online course or book. And so when you went freelance, did you did you have kind of clients lined up in advance? I mean, this is, I just, I'm asking about the particulars because this is something that a lot of our, our listeners might be thinking of doing themselves or, and it's definitely something that a lot of Lean Bob authors have, have done themselves in the past. Did you, did you have something lined up or did you just sort of, you know, dive in? So I hadn't had a backlog of clients to work for. I had a backlog of content ideas and stuff I wanted to work on my own. So this was not monetizable at the point, but I still wanted to do it. And I thought uh, the the IT industry is, is hiring like hell. And also for the freelance market, there are recruiters which will reach out to you and, and connect you with an employer. And I guess I it will work out eventually. And, and it did. I, I found my first client and uh, worked there for uh, seven months, but also not with uh, 40 hours a week. I am still doing my clients part time, so I still can split uh, my weekdays uh, for client work and uh, my own uh, business. And is all of your client work remote? Yes. So as of now, um, it's all remote. 
it's slowly getting back to let's meet once every four weeks for a sprint demo or for a workshop, but uh, most of them are, are remote. Um, and it's interesting, I know I, I, we were talking before we started recording, um, I listened to a, a podcast interview you did last year when I was preparing for, for this interview, um, where you talked about your productivity techniques and, and stuff like that. And I was just wondering if you could maybe walk us through a sort of, you know, there's maybe more than one typical kind of day that you have, but balancing this kind of, you know, independent kind of client work and then, uh, you know, content creation and stuff like that. And we'll go more into, into that in a little bit. But what what are your days like and how do you structure them? And uh, maybe if you could talk a little bit about the Pomodoro technique and how you yes. incorporate that, yeah. if, if that's still something that you're into. Yes, I'm, I'm still doing the Pomodoro technique, I guess, since two or three years now. So a usual day works like I get up at, at six and uh, really the first uh, 30 minutes are of the day are for uh, the day planning. So I, I think about what, what happened yesterday, what I want to accomplish today. And then I get right into uh, writing. So uh, back then I always uh, procrastinated on writing. So I thought I have to do it the first thing in the morning. So to eat the frog. And also I found out that I'm most creative in the, in the early days, in the early hours of the day. So I write for 30 minutes. Then I have some uh, light breakfast and then the day starts. So it's usually either a client day where I work uh, solely for the client or I work on my own projects. And when working on my own projects, I have my tasks split up in Pomodoro units. So I, for example, I planned for today, three Pomodoro units for this podcast. So one Pomodoro unit is 25 minutes and the technique works as you have a, a counter, which I have a browser application that um, I can click on, then the 25 minutes stopwatch goes down. And if it's over, you get five minutes of break. And then after these five minutes, you get back to work and then focus on your work. And within the 25 minutes, you're only allowed to do what you plan for. So don't do doom scrolling on Twitter. Don't check your emails, just focus on, on what you plan for. And yeah, on a usual day, I get between 10 to 14 of these units done. And yeah, that's that's the structure I found quite useful for me. And it also helps me to, to time box my work because if I just say today, I will write a blog post, uh, this can take hours. If I just say I have three blocks, one and a half hours for writing a blog post, I will get done as much as possible in this time window. Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating uh, approach to to doing things. And in particular, I mean, I've I've never I've never done it myself. But you know, the, um, if you've ever done sort of independent work, I you know I I did a you know a doctorate years ago, and so that's like a sort of multi-year sort of relatively independent project. And keeping up a sense of of just keeping up a sense of your own productivity is actually really important. Like even even if you're maybe not being all that productive some days. But being able to look back on it and go, well, at least I got this done or at least I got that done can often be really important. And tracking things like you were mentioning sounds like that can actually probably be really good for keeping your morale up. Yeah, exactly. I guess uh, working on your own, uh, it's quite easy to to slack off and say, I, I have the time on my own. I can now do whatever I want. But uh, with these techniques, I, I try to get at least some stuff going. And in the end, it, it adds up over time, those 30 minutes each day added up to about 150 blog articles over five years that I was able to produce and while still having fun and not burning out to produce them uh, while procrastinating on a Sunday evening. 
I'm really curious about the uh, the, the breaks. Um, uh, what do you do sort of when you've got a five minute break? Is it like, you know, go do some dishes or, you know, just to go stand on the balcony or or what what is it that you might do on a typical kind of break? Yeah, get a new coffee, go uh, to the balcony. Also one recent hack I found um, to go to the balcony and look for in, into the far so your eyes can adjust and you get sunlight into your eyes and you stand up. And then maybe also I, I, I usually when working on my own work from co-working places. So I then shift between uh, working locations. When I'm writing, I'm usually sitting in a more comfortable seat. If I'm doing software development, I'm using my laptop stand and sitting up straight. I'm going to the toilet, getting a fresh new water. Um, in the afternoon, doing a quick email check. Uh, that's usually how the breaks work. Sometimes I also skip the breaks if I'm in the tunnel, right? If I'm developing something or have an idea for the current article, I just skip the break and continue to the next technique and then do a little bit longer break after the next unit. Yeah, that's one thing I, I really enjoyed hearing about uh, when you were talking in this other podcast about it is this sort of like, it, it, it all sounds very rigid, but it's actually, you know, very realistic. You know, if you're in the flow, uh, you don't break it just because either your timer goes off or something like that, you'll, you, you stay in it. Um, and, you know, and, and some days you're, some days you're Superman and some days you're not that technique of looking into the distance actually it's sort, of, sort of very small detail, but I've heard that one before in the past as well, particularly for people who do a lot of sitting in front of screens. Um, you know, every few minutes, just taking some time to look off into the distance uh, can can actually be really helpful. Uh, and I'm very curious. Uh, maybe maybe I maybe you already mentioned it, and I sort of missed it. But at what point did you start getting into making your own content, like like courses and things like that? So I started with a blog five years ago, but it, this wasn't like professionalized. I was just summarizing what I've learned at work. And when being a junior, I was always struggling with articles to apply them to my work because either they got outdated or the code I wanted to copy and paste wasn't working because I didn't get the imports right. And from day one, I wanted to fix this. So all my blog posts have sample code uploaded to GitHub. So new developers, they can check out the source code and they have a running example. So I did this um, for some years, but with no strict... Um, agenda and it really went I, I made it serious when corona hit so this time where i had time to build my own online courses uh, so i would say two years ago i i really also narrowed down my niche before i was blogging about everything in the java ecosystem but uh, two years ago i found my niche in the testing part specifically for spring boot applications so that's one of the major uh, java frameworks to develop web applications and I doubled down on this niche because I think um, mostly nobody on the internet talks about uh, testing, right? They talk about shiny new features, how to implement them. You go to a conference, they show you how to implement. The next day you are at work and try to apply it and then you know, try to raise the pull requests. And then your tech lead says, where are the tests? We can't integrate this. Uh, it's, it's super nice, but nobody talks about testing. And that's why I thought... Uh, there is still some room for for content to be created there. It's uh, it's really interesting you mentioned now. Uh, you know, regular listeners of the podcast might be surprised to hear that people don't talk about testing all the time. <laughs> it actually could actually come. We had quite a few guests who've written books, and I mean, I, you know, it, it sort of sort of 
explains it right that there's you know people are looking for these self-publishing you know platforms to sort of get the word out because you know testing just isn't sort of this this thing that's sort of more commonly addressed and it's sort of very independently minded people as well who are often talking about it um i'm really curious about um so you you um so the courses that you have i'm looking for example at one right now called um getting started with testing spring boot applications in three hours what what platform do you use for the for the courses and how do you how do you how do you manage to sort of make make a little bit of income from them or a lot <laughs> it, it works works quite fine um i'm using a wordpress for my blog and i have a wordpress plugin that lets me allow um hosting my own uh university so i upload those videos to vimeo i can restrict them with some security configuration and then use the wordpress user management to have all the sign up flow passwords password resets email management and this is connected to an e-commerce provider where users clicking on my landing page to buy now, they are redirected to create first a user account on my WordPress site. Then they go to the checkout page, which is hosted on this e-commerce provider. And if they click buy and the payment go through a webhook registers uh, or grants access for the user to the course, and they go to my blog underneath slash courses and then can uh, work through the course, which is mainly video, but also sometimes mixed with text lessons and um, hands-on um, exercises. And do you do any any grading or anything like that? Not much yet. So there's the one downside of this plugin, they uh, have some quizzes, but a really fully fledged um, exercise quizzes and graduation system is still to come. Um, yeah, that's something I'm I'm about to do. I have some um, certificates, so I signed up for a certificate um, business that uh, lets me um, sign certificates so that the course students can uh, upload it to LinkedIn or share it uh, on their on their profile. Um, the last question I'll ask, general, just in general about about content creation, because sometimes it, you know when you're on the other side of it and you're thinking about doing it, hearing just even a few details can be very very useful and, and help you get going. Um, so you do you have a few thousand followers on YouTube? Do you, are you monetizing YouTube directly? Um, not from day one. So, um, I mean, when coming to YouTube, I always had the dream of uh, how things look like as a creator and monetizing uh, uh, display ads on YouTube. Um, I mainly used YouTube as a playground for my online courses. So getting used to speaking to the screen, recording yourself, then recording and editing, all this process I used YouTube as the sandbox. So I didn't start right with my first online course because the quality, I guess, wouldn't be that good for people to pay money for. So YouTube was my playground and I'm now monetizing it a bit. So you need, uh, that's quite a big um, threshold to reach. You need 2000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watched content to become a YouTube partner. And then you are allowed to add, um, ads in front or in between your videos and yeah i mean it's making me i don't know 40 bucks a month uh with having uh, i don't know 500 views a day just as a ballpark figure so i'm not getting rich but people uh, get used to my content some also prefer the uh, hands-on tutorials over the text plain articles so sometimes i try to recycle and for those that learn better while seeing it in action, they can go to YouTube. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing all that. I think um, uh, it's a sort of, you know, 
probably heartening for people in a way to hear that like you know even with all these thousands of years and stuff like that you know you know sort of not necessarily getting rich but you know but but actually like getting all that interaction from people can actually be very make thing everything seem very worthwhile um and of course people are you know discovering all your, your courses and things like that from their views um and and genuinely learning things which is really great when it comes to content creation i guess moving on to the next part of the interview um uh you've you've uh, co-authored the book stratospheric from zero to production with spring boot and aws um i asked you earlier about your origin story uh, of your own career um and so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the origin story of the book which um i'll, I'll link to the really great um blog post that you have um, called self-publishing a book with almost complete strangers um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about how that book got going and then and then what the book's about yeah so I, I it was two years ago I didn't start with the intention to write a book but was uh, doom scrolling once again on Twitter and sawing uh, seeing Tom Homburgs uh, who's now co-author of it uh, reaching out to his Twitter audience uh, which I was part of back then for other tech bloggers to uh, organize um, some Zoom meetings to discuss ideas, marketing, how to um, structure your days, how to structure your articles. So it was like an unofficial meetup for uh, software developers which are running a blog and trying to get this uh, going. We met there for two or three times. Um, I guess the group uh, was uh, quite big, up to 10 people were, were in there. We were discussing. WordPress over static site generators and all the technical stuff you you want to discuss when running your own blog. And I guess in the second or third session, Tom just out of the blue asked uh, if someone would be interested in taking a deeper look into AWS and Spring Boot because he was working with it back then at his um, company and wanted to get more, more into it and potentially write a book about it. And Björn, the other co-author, and I, we raised our hands and then we organized another session. Just the three of us were talking about it. We were all having some AWS and Spring Boot background, um, but we all said we wanted to explore also the other parts because as a developer, you usually don't tackle the networking or the infrastructure part, which is also quite interesting. And it, it really worked out from day one. So we were implementing a small proof of concept application, something that we wanted to do. We wanted to take juniors really from, from zero, knowing nothing about AWS uh, to production. So as part of the book, we are building a real world application that has features that you will use in almost all of your enterprise applications, like storing data in a database, doing asynchronous processing with queues, sending out emails, having web sockets for real-time notification. And once we found out, we can develop a really nice educational um, piece of software. We sat down and laid out a rough plan for the book and then just started like uh, with a Scrum setup with a team of three authors. We organized uh, every two weeks so-called uh, sprint review, where we were uh, showing the work we did in the past two weeks, we were planning uh, what to work on next. And ever since incrementally um, created uh, the sample application and wrote the book. And yeah, I found out that LeanPub is the perfect uh, place to do such incremental uh, ebook work. Um, and just 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 for people who might not know, I'm, I'm sure everyone who's listening knows what uh, AWS is, but if you could talk a little bit, a little bit about Spring Boot. And, yeah, and what that is. 
Yeah, so um, with AWS being the major cloud provider these days, Spring Boot is like the leading framework for developing Java applications. So it's like a framework like Django for Python or any other uh, framework that lets you build mainly web applications and um, um, does all the heavy lifting for you in the background. And it also comes with great AWS integration and that's why we picked this framework because we were using it in our day-to-day -day jobs and projects and yeah java as the as the main language and built the whole project uh, with a focus on deploying it and connecting to various aws services to um, educate the reader about the most essential services they need to know on aws and um, in addition to the the book on LeanPub, you're you're um, using our courses uh, part of the platform as well for a Stratosphere course. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that. I mean, it's you're publishing the course in progress, um, uh, which is which is really interesting. Um, uh, we we um, uh, LeanPub, as as many people listening will know, it sort of promotes the idea of publish early, publish often for books. But we also actually do that with courses, which is a bit unique. Uh, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that that project, how you guys decided to set that up and, and what you're at, because you're, you're marketing it in a very sort of interesting way. And I was wondering if we could talk about, about that, that whole, that whole project as well. Yeah. So, so the ebook, I guess, in total took a little bit more than a year from the first meeting via Zoom to then our 1.0 release, where we could move the needle 200% on LeanPub. So a year for, for writing together in total about 500 pages. So we, we split up the work almost evenly so everybody was working on their own chapters and we were using github to do uh, reviews and when we did a small it's also on youtube we did a, a launch together with our audience so from day one we were allowing i guess it was 20 percent completeness people were allowed to to buy the book and those uh, early adopters we invited to a youtube release party uh, on, on august uh, 2021 and within there, we were showcasing the application and hitting the release button together. So then it was the release 1.0. And we also already said um, we may want to create an online course. So we are thinking about this because some readers mentioned they, they would rather work with an online course or they wanted to a little bit more hands-on, go more in-depth at various parts. And we were procrastinating a bit with this project because um, all co-authors have their, their, their jobs. But I guess two or three months ago, we were really uh, getting this project forward. And we also, as we, had, as we made good experience with the incremental process of publishing the book, we also wanted to adopt this for our online course. And what we are now doing, we are, all three authors are uh, taking one module. So we have three modules in the book. First module is about getting started with AWS. Second module is building applications with Spring Boot on AWS. And the third module is like um, operating your application in production. And every author gets one module and records um, and videos on top of it. So we are not just copy pasting what we show with text. We also go at various parts in more detail or can explain it way better when we are inside our IDE or when we are on AWS, we can go way more in detail and give more best practices. And the way we launch it, um, we have early bird programs. So um, similar to the book, those that join early may not get all the videos right now, but they get it for a cheaper price. And with every release where we release 
further videos, which we are creating in parallel behind the scenes. Price goes up a bit and uh, we let new users uh, into the course. And will there be, um, will there be in addition to watching videos, will there be quizzes that people can take and things like that, where they'll get, will they, they'll get automatically graded? Yes, that's, that's uh, one of the biggest pros uh, from, from the LeanPub um, choice we made. Uh, we saw quite early that the um, capabilities there are way better to have quizzes and embedded questions and exercises. And that's what we are building uh, in parallel so that they then have the entire uh, online course set uh, on LeanPub. And in the end, I guess, also get a nicely formatted certificate of completion with their score and um, can see there they are take a home take home quizzes and uh, how they performed yeah thanks very much for sharing those details of, of how you're doing it it's so interesting i'm um, just for anyone listening uh, we we leave we leave the sort of um the the weeds part for the end of the uh the uh the podcast there's some uh, people who actually skip to the end to just to hear that kind of stuff or for anyone listening <laughs> might be surprised to know that but um so lean pub lean pub uh, books are written in plain text in in the in, in markua the sort of markup syntax and um, we actually also you can also actually write courses that way as well and you can actually generate from one manuscript document you can actually generate a book and a separate course if you want to as well but um if you're familiar with how lean pub works writing books um you can actually just sort of like you can actually create quizzes as well. And so if you create a course, you can then, you can then, you know, just from plain text produce these quizzes that people can take online in the browser and they can actually get graded. And then in the end, yeah, get, get certificates. I'm glad you say nicely formatted. Um, <laughs> that's nice to hear. Uh, but yeah, people can, people can get certificates and things like that. There's a little bit of customization that you can do and things like that as well. Um, speaking of the weeds though. Um, so you mentioned that, so you, you guys were, you, are you, you co-authors were collaborating on this book. You'd actually never met in person, and you were using Git um, and GitHub yes. to do this collaboration. Uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about how that worked. Um, did you did you have uh, you know sort of did you create branches all the time when you were doing sort of new tweaks? Did you do pull requests with each other and things like that? Yeah. So we were really applying our best practices from software development to creating the book. So we used the Scrum technique, and for the actual writing. We used a GitHub repository, wrote in Markdown file with the Makura flavored uh, syntax. And the way we structured it, we have the main branch, which goes uh, to production, which publishes the final book, and a preview branch, where we um, first merge our changes and then create previews for the next version. And every author was working independently on their own branch, which was uh, created from the preview branch, doing their changes, writing their, their section, so we also split up um, the chapters per author so that we are not um, writing for the same section at the same time. So in our um, bi-weekly meetings, everybody had their, um, their idea of what they want to explore more or write about. And naturally, it resolved all the time. So someone was working on this part. The other one was more interested, for example, in the monitoring ends of AWS. And uh, we were then creating pull requests to the preview branch and using the GitHub feature to um, review it. So because we are writing in Markdown, we didn't, we had, we didn't have to share doc, docx or Google Docs, which were hard to version. So we could, within the pull request, say, hey, here's a typo. And even with GitHub's new feature to suggest a change, the author could say, hey, let's restructure the sentence like this, or here's a comma missing. And yeah, really using pull requests and the whole GitHub suite to develop the application, then merged all the changes to preview 
and after two or three months we were generating a new version out of the preview branch by merging into main and then clicking the button to release uh, in only in public. And um, did that did that did that whole process seem kind of natural? Because I, I think to a lot of people, you know, like a lot of people might not know that, like you know, actually writing writing software is writing. It's it's a form of writing, a very collaborative form of writing. And um, transferring that to book, that's kind of sort of been the sort of lean pub dream is to kind of get get you know these sort of very sophisticated ways of collaborating together on software to to write books. And did that all just seem kind of natural? Yeah, for for us with our development background, it feels super natural. So it's the way we work uh, on our day to day projects. Uh, it's the way we collaborate getting immediate or asynchronous feedback. I mean, we were all sitting uh, at different locations. So uh, Tom sitting in Australia, uh, Björn and me sitting in Germany, we had to align, we couldn't have synchronous reviews. We were coordinating with a Slack uh, channel where we also now invite our audience to have a community where they can ask their further questions or reach out to us, which is uh, going quite well. So. Every um, reader gets a link to a private Slack community where we then answer questions or announce new versions of the book. And within there, we, we collaborated and asynchronously when Tom in the morning in the morning in Australia raised the pull request and going to work, I could review it uh, in, in the morning in Germany. So this whole asynchronous setup with uh, remote work really felt natural and yeah, was greatly supported by LeanPub. Uh, you spontaneously went and answered my next question for me, which was, um, uh, you know, uh, have you have you been, uh, you know, soliciting feedback from people and getting it, and how do you manage that community? And that that's really interesting. Um, uh, you know, giving people access to a sort of private private Slack Slack channel um, and getting feedback from them that way must be, I mean, really rewarding both for you and for your readers. Yes, yes. So one Slack was one of the ways for feedback to come in, and also our Twitter accounts, and we also created our own landing page. So uh, on top of the LeanPub landing page, we have our own landing page where we have a little bit more images and can structure the way uh, we, we want things to look like. And then we redirect to LeanPub. And there's also an email address where they can reach out and provide feedback. And using this incremental approach, we could really take those early feedback into considerations and uh, adjust the ongoing chapters which we are writing. Yeah, for anyone listening, um, the, the uh, website is stratospheric.dev and you can find, get the book and get the course and, and sort of, a, it's a really great website actually. I'm just on that note um, for the content creators out there who are listening. Uh, what, what did you use to, to create that page? Was that WordPress as well? Oh, this is a static site generator. So this is Hugo, um, somehow similar to Jekyll, um, what uh, GitHub pages provide. We are using Hugo and HTML templates and we purchased, I guess, I guess a I don't know, 40 bucks, a word, uh, bootstrap theme, bootstrap CSS, which we then tweaked. And we kept it really simple in the beginning, just a landing page with some FAQs, also a way to join our newsletter. I haven't touched this yet. So we also have a newsletter specifically for this project. Uh, the main reason is the, when joining the newsletter, you get a little discount, uh, which re uh, visitors that just went uh, straight on LeanPub don't get. So if you sign up for our newsletter, enter your name and your email, you will get an, an, a coupon code. And as part of this newsletter community, we also um, provide the updates. So even though we released version one uh, last year, we have been uh, releasing new versions almost every two to three months because uh, Spring Boot and AWS is, is changing. 
not so fast that we can't get behind updating the book, but we are still applying the best practices, the changes in the libraries, and also fixing security vulnerabilities or using feedback. And yeah, this newsletter is another a form of, of feedback channel and way to promote it to our audience. And so the, coup the coupon is a coupon link that you've created using our coupons feature. Is that, is that right? Exactly, yes. Okay, okay. And, and, and how often do you actually email? I'm sort of curious about the details about that. How often do you email people who sign up for the newsletter? So there is no automated evergreen sequence. When they are signing up, they get one email with the coupon code and they can go to LeanPub. And afterwards, we just email them. For example, if we also, or if there's something to announce in this niche, the Spring Boot on AWS or a content piece or a new version of the ebook, a new version now of the online course. So we did quite some marketing for this newsletter for the online course because it was quite new. Um, so in total, I guess, maybe every two to three weeks, they get an email. Uh, so it's not high volume, it's not that frequent, but we try to keep it to a minimum that they, there's too much churn. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing those details. And that's actually something that we're that we're um, thinking about ourselves is um, as newsletter signups and things like that, um, and how we can foster more. Uh, because you know, tip, typically the kind of features we have for communicating with with readers are um, uh, um, people can sign up, people can opt in to be notified if there's sort of a major new release, and you can send them a little message and they'll get an email. People can, we have an about the author form that people can use to contact authors, and that can be kind of double blind if you want it to be. So you don't need to release your your um, uh, your email addresses to each other, but but actually, sort of, of course, newsletters are a huge thing, um, and uh, and um, yeah, that's something that we're definitely thinking about doing. And hearing that feedback will be really great um, for our plans. Um, the last question uh, <laughs> that we always ask on the podcast, if the uh, guest is a lean pub author, is uh, if there was one amazing feature we could build for you, some dream feature we could build for you. If there was one terrible, awful problem with LeanPub that you hate that we could fix for you. Um, what can you think of that you would ask us to do? I think you've got a couple. <laughs> I mean, I, now that I have to find one that is uh, the killer feature. I mean, one feature that we now uh, thought would work. So we saw your the bundles on LeanPub uh, and we thought, oh, we can bundle our ebook and the course. And after I created a sample and we released the first version, we thought, oh, bundles only work for ebooks. So you can bundle multiple ebooks. What would be great, uh, because this is currently a little bit of manual process. If someone is completely new, they are asking, hey, do I get the ebook? If I get the online course, if I get the ebook, get I, do I get a discount and vice versa? So if we could bundle online courses with ebooks into a, a bundle, that would be a nice feature, I guess, not the killer feature, but would really, really help us promote both both sides of, of the product. Yeah, thanks very much for bringing that up. So for people listening, yeah, so um, on LeanPub, you can create you can create bundles um, of ebooks. So if, like you can, it can be bundles of your own ebooks. You can actually invite people you've never met who are other LeanPub authors who've written about similar subjects. You can invite them to participate in a bundle where people make one purchase and then they get copies of, of all the participating books. Um, it would be totally natural and it will happen someday that I, I, you know, I can't promise any timing or anything like that, but of course, being able to bundle a book and a course together would be, would be natural. Um, uh, and in fact, you know, one of our, one of the reasons we built the sort of courses dimension of the LeanPub platform is that so many LeanPub books are what's, you know, 
called in the in the industry prescriptive nonfiction, which is how how to books basically, um, and that, that they're up to date. And it's sort of very natural thing is if you've gone through all the trouble to write a whole book about something, actually having an having an accompanying course that people can take, and specifically where they can get, then get a certificate to sort of show some sort of social proof of what they've learned and sort of confirm for themselves what they've learned as well. Um, it's just a natural thing and having to buy them separately is fine, um, but um, but obviously being able to buy them together would be great. And actually, yeah, what people have been doing, uh, just like you guys have, is sort of some kind of manual process where, you know, if you buy the book, uh, here's, here's a discount coupon for the course, or if you buy the course, here's a discount coupon for the book, and you might be giving it for a discount, or you might be, the discount might be actually free yeah. uh, for, for the other product. Um, yeah, so thanks, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, that is definitely something that we're going to be uh, we're going to be delivering at some point. Well, uh, Philip, um, thank you very much for taking the time out of your day uh, to um, your your busy and structured day um, to, uh, to to be on the podcast. And thank you very much for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, and thanks for this excellent platform. I'm really looking forward, maybe in the future, to create further eBooks on my own or with other co-authors. Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.